welcome to episode 309 of the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. My name is Seth Perrin, historian and deputy director of the Mississippi Armed Forces Museum here at Camp Shelby. And with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Toady, former skipper of the Fast Attack Submarine, USS Indianapolis, Commodore Submarine Squadron 3 in Pearl Harbor, and many other postings. How are you healing this week, Bill? <laughs> well, Seth, um, 10 days, as I think that's right, post-op with that reattachment of my right rotator cuff here. And you get good days and bad days. Yesterday was a good day, so I had high hopes that I was on the mend, but today, uh, not so good day. And it's going to be, I'm trying to keep my energy level up so we can get through this because we got an extremely important topic to cover today. And Seth, I think we've discovered some new material which is going to, in part caused me to eat crow as it pertains to my prior statements on Admiral Nimitz um, that I made in one of our early episodes. So I'm going to have to see. I'm gonna, I, hope, I, I hope my crow is well done before I eat it. But uh, it's, it's, it's fantastic that we're always continuing to discover new material and correct false premises, even when some of those false premises were mine. Right, Seth? Hey, you know, I mean, the thing is, is that it, the more you dive into things, you know, and I've been doing this a long time, the more you mm -hmm. dive into things and the deeper you dig and the, some of the stuff that's coming out, you know, I mean, the war's 80 years past-ish, and depending on what year you're talking about, and you know, people say, oh, there could never be, how, how much more new material can you find? <laughs> well, oh, just nice. give me some time and I'm sure we'll yeah. find it. Because, right. you know, I mean, I'd never heard of this this episode before uh, Friday. And, uh, you know, when I was writing these notes. So, and we'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, well, I just want to point out that, that Bill is indeed a friggin' trooper for hanging out. I, you know, I offered to postpone it and push it back, and he said, nope, let's get this done. No. So uh, we're so last recording week, today. So, and yeah. Last week, I was still on the painkillers. So having you <laughs> and John Parshall being able to banter back and forth and me just kind of, I was lucky I wasn't drooling. Uh, good news this <laughs> week is I'm not on the painkillers anymore. Bad news is that means I got some pain. Yeah, bad, bad news is you're not on the painkillers anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. All right. Yeah. Uh, but before we get started, we want to ask you to like and subscribe to our channel. As it helps others find our show, we want to get the history to the masses. And if you want to help us do that, then hit that subscribe button and like the episodes. And thank you very much for doing so. We've hit 20,000 subscribers, I believe, as of either late last night or early this morning, which is mm -hmm. pretty cool. So thank you all very, very much. On with the show. Um, sitting squarely in the middle of a map of the Pacific, the Mariana Islands holds a commanding strategic point. To their east lie the Gilberts. To their southeast lie the smoking ruins of Truk. To the west of the Marianas lie the Philippine archipelago. And to the north of that massive area lies Iwo Jima. In the middle of the road, so to speak, the Mariana Islands were an extremely strategic target for the United States to capture and for Japan to defend. Lying only 1,500 miles from Tokyo, the Marianas were well within the operational range of the new Boeing B-29s being churned out of factories back in, back in the United States. Army Air Force's General Hap Arnold coveted the Marianas, as did Admiral Ernest King, as we shall see. 
Both knew full well that an invasion of Japan lay on the horizon, horizon, and that the Marianas, with their range from Japan well within the striking distance of the new superforts, were valuable assets to have in the buildup to that ultimate invasion. The Japanese also valued the Marianas. Colonizing the area for the last 30 years, the Japanese considered the Marianas, specifically Saipan, to be a Japanese mandate part of Japan. Loss of homeland-esque prestige was one thing. Loss of strategic initiative and defensive posture was another. If Japan lost the Marianas, their position in the war would lose significant ground and would effectively cut off their holdings south and put other holdings to the west in jeopardy. To the Japanese, the Marianas would have to be held at all costs. For the Americans, the Marianas would have to be taken at all costs. So, like I was saying, we're, we're, we're not going to dive into the actual operation of the mirror. We're not going to dive into Forager yet, yet in this episode. This is the setup. You know, as we've done in previous ep- – our previous um, – four previous uh, operations, we always kind of do a setup, you know, and mm-hmm. this is no different here. Right. Yeah, and so, you know, it's important to understand the history and how we got to the point where we had to take – the Marianas, Seth. The Japanese took position, possession of the Marianas in, I think, around 1914. A League of Nations mandate, and they were called the mandates because of this, a League of Nations mandate following World War I further strengthened Japan's political hold on the area. The Marianas were not a resource-rich area for war, the war machine, like Japan was building in Indochina in the early 20th century and other places like that. But they were a resource for the citizenry because as Japan lacks, among many things, land. Filled with fertile ground for growing sugarcane, the area became Japan's largest producer of sugar by the mid-1930s. And at same, around the same time, of course, in the United States, we were having Japanese immigrants in the territory of Hawaii to produce sugar, pineapples, and and other agricultural goods like that. But Japan, rather than importing from Hawaii, wanted their own place to do this kind of thing, and they saw the Marianas as that place. So seeing the Marianas, specifically Saipanitinian, as colonies, Japan poured money, industry, and infrastructure into the two islands but mostly into Saipan. The main town on Saipan's coast, Garapan, was built in a somewhat modern Japanese-style city. Garapan boasted schools, churches, temples, and many small businesses. And Seth, Saipan may be one of the first places that both you and I, and for that matter, John Parshall, who's not with us today, have actually visited. I spent time there on active duty, I actually pulled a submarine into Saipan Harbor and crawled around many of the battlefields that we're going to be talking about in the upcoming episodes, as I know you have as well. I did, yeah. I had the opportunity. It's been quite some time. I had the opportunity to go to Saipan, Tinian, and Iwo Jima uh, back in March of 2009. Um, and Saipan is is very large. It's a very very large island, and we're and we'll get into the the intricacies of Saipan in, in further episodes here coming up in the near future. But yeah, to to your point, this is one of the few places that we've talked about on this podcast that both of us 
and including John Parshall, who will be with us in our uh, episodes on Saipan when we get to the actual fight, uh, have all visited. Not, unfortunately, not at the same time, but uh, we have seen quite a bit of the islands uh, together, and it is a very, very rugged place, and the scars of battle are still very, very evident on uh, on Saipan's, uh, you know, natural uh, beauty, and it is actually a very beautiful place. Uh, it is. You know, infrastructure, Bill, you talked about infrastructure, the Japanese building Garapan into essentially, well, not essentially, but it was a small Japanese modern city. It was not the only thing that Japan imported into the Marianas. People were also an important import to the area. Uh, again, colonizing the area, Japan sent ethnic Japanese colonists, mostly of Okinawan origin, on, including some Koreans too, um, into the islands to populate the area. By 1941, Japanese colonists, and that's what they were, uh, comprised over three-quarters of Saipan's population, which sat at roughly 30,000. This is just Saipan. Now, the Marianas is, is, is a big archipelago of islands. You know, it's, it's Saipan, it's Tinian, it's Guam, it's Rota, and there's several other smaller ones in there. And we're focusing on Saipan here for obvious reasons, is when Operation Forager, which is what this episode is about, the setup for Forager, kicks off saipan is the main bullseye focus the other islands come later but saipan is the is, is the bullseye in the middle of the dartboard here um mm. immediately valuing their location on the map as both a population colony and a military outpost japan went to great lengths to hide what was on saipan to anyone who were not japanese bill they went to great depths to make sure that nobody knew what was going on on saipan yeah you know, one of the things, Seth, it's important to understand there's a lot of fake history on the Internet. We say that a lot, right? Mm. But oh, one yeah. of the things, I think it was in a Wikipedia article about the battle, when we get to future episodes and we talk about the civilian populations on Saipan and how they reacted during the battle, um, one of those fake history, you know, articles talked about the native um, Marianas people um, committing suicide and things like that. And, and that, that is not true. These were Japanese. Um, mm -hmm. These were not the, the native, you know, Guamanians, the Saipanese um, that were reacting this way. Now, the reason, you know, there was mostly Okinawans and Koreans here is because Japan thought of it as a, almost a labor colony. And of course, kind of. proper Japanese, you know, we, we separate proper Japanese, the people who are non-Okinawan from Okinawans, um, thought down, looked down on Okinawans, and in fact, didn't consider them pure Japanese, kind of the way Han Chinese didn't consider mm -hmm. lower Chinese to be real Chinese. And so you send um, Okinawans, Koreans, to build out these very rugged, this very rugged terrain into farmland, very rocky terrain, uh, is not kind of work that's appropriate for a purely ethnic Japanese. And so you get all right. of that, all that kind of dynamic and, and, and borderline, not borderline, racism going into this equation as well, Seth. Yeah, no, that's 100% true. And, and there were, there were, there were, you know, 100% pure Japanese there as well, but they were the minority of those 30,000-ish. Management, police, things like that, yeah. 
Exactly. 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 So, you know, getting back to the whole secrecy of the place, uh, Westerners were actually barred from visiting Saipan from the 1920s through the beginning of the war. As a result of that, and this is going to be huge later on here in the battle, little to no intelligence was to be had regarding Japanese forces, defenses, or intentions on Saipan. And we'll get to more on that in a little bit. In 1935, the Japanese built Aslito Airfield on Saipan. A seaplane base was also constructed on the western coast, and a fighter strip was built near the northern tip of the island, a place called Marpy Point. And you are certainly going to hear a lot about Marpy Point as we get on into the episodes about Saipan. So, you know, it wasn't just a... There's a very, very interesting story, and we'll get to the Admiral Nimitz portion of this in just a few minutes, but... There's a very interesting story as to how the Marianas came to be a target of the United States. You know, we've talked about Warplane Orange, Bill, and we, we don't need to get into that all over again. But that was considered, Marianas were considered one of the stepping stones in the road to Tokyo, even in Warplane Orange and, and Rainbow and all of that. But it came into more focus after the Marshall Islands campaign. Uh, that the Marianas was a place that that we wanted to take. Uh, in May 1943, at what was called the Trident Conference, held in Washington, D.C., between the governments of Great Britain and the United States, the topic of the ultimate defeat of Japan was brought up, amongst other small things, and I put this in quotes, like the impending invasion of Sicily. You know, that was a, certainly no small thing. Um, no. No, not at all. Several issues came out of the conference insofar as this show is concerned. Uh, it was proposed by Winston Churchill, although it was going to be proposed by the JCS had Churchill not brought it up. So it wasn't Churchill's idea per se, that the United States would take the lead in the Pacific War. Britain would help where it could, but the U.S. would run the PTO with the help of its Pacific allies, the Australians, New Zealanders, and, and, and our friends out there. And not that this really hasn't been the course of the war to this point, but now it's official. Now now the, the rest of the Western allies are saying, you know what, we don't have time for this. You guys take over. And at this point, most of the planning, not all of it, but mm -hmm. most of the strategic planning for the remainder of the war falls squarely on the shoulders of the United States. And by that, I mean two guys, Douglas MacArthur and Ernest J. King. And we're going to get to that in just a minute because there is a little bit of a – well, not a little bit. There is a, a lot bit <laughs> of a war between these two guys as this plan develops, Bill. Um, mm -hmm. There were a couple of other issues that were brought up at the Trident Conference, though, weren't there? Yeah, there was. And uh, I want to put – I want to table this for the second. But I, I noticed that you said Douglas MacArthur and Ernest King rather than Douglas MacArthur and Chester Nimitz. We're going to get to why that's mm – -hmm the case here in a minute. But yeah, another issue was that the at this tr conference, this Trident conference, that's where it was formally decided that the, we would insist that Japan surrender unconditionally. This is now, remember, this is still 1943. We, I'm sorry, 19, yeah, 1943. So we've got a lot of war to fight here still. And this early, we're already deciding that the only outcome for Japan is that they surrender unconditionally. And fully aware that in order to force this issue, an invasion of the home islands would have to occur. It was already known that Japan wasn't just going to capitulate. That we were already in 43 planning that the final outcome would require an invasion of the home islands. So the JCS proposed that a 
sustained, systematic, and large-scale air offensive against Japan itself take place. Now, the Joint Chiefs of Staff felt that an air offensive of such magnitude could be mounted only from bases in China. And I think we talked about this in a prior episode. And we talked about the fact that in order to mount an offensive air campaign against China, uh, against Japan from China, we would have to fly all of the supplies into China over the Himalayas. And going, Seth, there's no Army Air Force's leader who thought there was, this was a good idea, did they? No, heck no. And, and I mean, and, and to be 100% clear, you're 100% right in, in that we mm-hmm. actually did launch B-29 bombing raids from China. This was a thing. We did. Um, but you're exactly right that the supply issue in China, and I'm not just talking about fuel, although that was a huge part of it, but it's munitions, uh, repair facilities, or lack thereof, made that situation completely untenable. There was no way that we were going to be able to mount a large-scale aerial offensive against the home islands of Japan, the likes of which was being launched against Germany from England. That was never going to happen in China, even though that was the initial thought. It's like, oh, this is the way it's going to have to be. This is the way it's going to be. It became pretty clear pretty quick that that was just not going to work. Uh, Adequate supply routes would have to be established to maintain the Chinese, uh, to maintain the Chinese and to support the allied operations in and from China. Uh, The immediate reopening of the Burma Road and the seizure later of a port on the China coast would be necessary. This is just sustained B-29 operations to the extent that we wanted to force the issue with Japan. Hong Kong, which was felt to be the most suitable port for initial seizure, which could be captured by forces operating from the interior of China, supplemented by amphibious forces operating in the South China Sea. Now, what's the point of us saying all this? Because the fact that this was even an option on the table that had to be supported by all these further operations just shows you how untenable launching B-29, like sustained B-29 raids from China was going to be. It was going to be almost impossible. And we're talking years in the future because in order to invade and capture, say, Hong Kong, we had to get there. (laughs) And we weren't anywhere near there yet. So this is not going to happen fast. Logistics. To start operating from China. And in contrast with that, there was the Plan Orange Orange approach, which would be the mid-Pacific, Central Pacific approach. And so turning from general to specific, Admiral King presented the outline of operations the United States hoped to carry out in 1943 and 44 in the Pacific. In his opinion, all such operations should be directed towards severing the Japanese lines of communication and towards recapturing the Philippines. Now, we had an episode early on where I think the title of the episode was Admiral King was right about almost everything. And here's another thing he was right about. That's right, Seth. Yeah, 100%, 100% right. And and we're going to get into why. And I know there's a lot of King haters on there, and that's fine. You can have your opinion, but just hear me out. Um King considered decisive action against the Japanese fleet and seizure of the Mariana Islands prime requirements for victory in the Pacific. Because of their location on the enemy lines of communications, the Marianas were the key to the approach to the Philippines regardless of whether the northern, southern, or central route were taken. 
pointing out that the ultimate defeat of Japan would come about through blockade, bombing, and assault. He proposed that attrition of Japanese war potential be intensified in the meantime and that favorable positions be secured for the final attack. Within all of this, the Joint Chiefs of Staff approved a scheduled launch date for an aerial offensive against Japan of, quote, no later than fall of 1944. Only such an offensive can, at a sufficiently early date, reach and destroy the vital elements of Japan's transportation structure and the nerve centers of her economic, military, and political empire, unquote. At this time, the JCS concluded that only bases in China would be able to execute these directives in the allotted time. Now, go back to what we initially said about you know, actual, actually completing these operations in China and all the things that had to be done before. So you'll see at this point the JCS is kind of shooting their mouths off before the – they're putting the cart before the horse here is what they're doing. Consider the dates of these statements now. This is May 1943, Bill. This is before the Central Pacific Drive has even kicked off. We haven't even invaded Basio yet. So there's a lot of time and lessons to be learned here. Six months later, at another conference in November 1943 at Cairo, the ideas are starting to change now here, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Started to really seriously think about capturing the Mariana Islands. And so that was put forth before the Joint Chiefs. And initially, and not surprisingly, the Army did not agree with the idea of extending the Central Pacific Drive through the Marianas. General Marshall only accepted the idea when General Hap Arnold seemed to like it because, as we said earlier, it would allow the B-29s the ability to actively strike mainland Japan. So Arnold was aware that the idea that his B-29s could operate from China was ludicrous, despite the fact that Marshall wanted it to happen. He knew that supply, support, logistics lay in favor of the Marianas because of the support that the Navy could provide and the Merchant Marine could provide, which they couldn't provide in China. And so he got on the bandwagon as it pertained to the Marianas. And then despite support from Marshall, our friend, General Mack, of course, <laughs> vied for all of the goodies, Seth. Yes, he did. And, and, and I want to take a step back before we get into this to, to pile on to what you just said about the supply and logistics situation in the Marianas. If you look at a map of the Marianas, again, it's in the smack dab in the middle of the friggin' ocean. We got bases in the Marshalls. We got bases in New Guinea. We've got, you know, it can be supplied. And the fact that at this stage, operations in China are already, already and have been struggling for consistent supply tells you all you need to know, all you need to know. So you were 100% right in that saying that the logistical supplies, and because and, at the end of the day, that's what matters. You got to have bombs, you got to have fuel, you got to have spare parts, and you got to have human beings to put on these airplanes. And you can't get them to China very quickly as opposed to the Marianas where you can. Now, back to your point of MacArthur. You know, it, it was no secret that Douglas MacArthur did not want the Central Pacific Drive to commence. He was fully aware that if the Central Pacific Drive does commence, which of course it does at Tarawa in November 1943, that a vast majority, not all of, but a vast majority of the supplies that are going to the Pacific are going to go to that Central Pacific Drive. And he's right. They do. Not all of them, but a lot of them do. He desperately 
General MacArthur desperately pleaded with Marshall and the Joint Chiefs of Staff to can- Joint Chiefs of Staff to cancel the Central Pacific Drive so as to give all of the supplies, including the fast carriers under Chester Nimitz, to the Southwest Pacific area to further speed up and extend his obsession, which is exactly what it was, an obsession with retaking the Philippines. MacArthur pitched a fit when he discovered that Marshall, General George Marshall, his boss, was going to support Admiral, Admiral King's plan to take the Marianas. In an appeal to Secretary of War Henry Stimson, MacArthur wrote, and I quote, don't let the Navy's pride of position and ignorance continue this great tragedy to our country, unquote. MacArthur could only see one side of the argument, his, and his obsession with the Philippines clouded the actual goal of the war at this stage, which was to force the Japanese to surrender through attrition. We've already had an episode with Rich Frank where we said specifically the Navy, the Navy especially was like, we do not want to invade Japan. We want to blockade and we want to and, and basically starve these people into submission. Mm-hmm. And General MacArthur was the one that said, no, we're going to go land. And, but, and, and this isn't a MacArthur bashing episode. We've done it a hundred times. But this all leads to this next very, very interesting story, Bill. Um, it, MacArthur's hissy fit, and this is what it is because there's records of this, is not a surprise because he does this on a consistent basis like a petulant child. It's whom he swayed to his side of the argument is what is a surprise. And I'm going to let you take the reins on this one, but go for it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what. The, um, I want to underscore that quote that you read just a moment ago about him calling it the Navy's pride of position and ignorance continue this great tragedy to our country. Now, I wonder if Nimitz knew that he had said that about, he's talking about Nimitz here. I don't know. If Nimitz oh, yeah. oh, would have um, you know, seen things a little differently. But the truth is, while MacArthur's hit, hissy fit is not a surprise, at the Cairo conference in November, the JCS tried to placate both sides of the arena. MacArthur and the Navy, actually Admiral King in the Navy. The JCS stated that Mac would continue his advance across Southwest West Pacific. That is to say, New Guinea and Mindanao areas, while Nimitz would continue his Central Pacific Drive that had just kicked off at Beishio. Now, remember how things are going at Beishio. JCS looked for two offensive to converge on the Luzon-Formosa-China Triangle so as to bomb, blockade, and invade, if necessary, Japan into submission. Now, in early 1944, King flew to Pearl Harbor and met with Nimitz. He had every reason to assume that his plan to capture the Marianas was a full go. Nimitz told him of the plans to capture Kwajalein. Remember, Nimitz overrode his own staff in directing the capture of Kwajalein. And a wee talk, an assault on the Carolines. Following that, the Marianas would be seized by November of 1944. So far, so good. However, King still had MacArthur to deal with, and Mac was not to be denied. Surprisingly, at a conference in Pearl Harbor, where Mac sent his subordinates, General Sutherland and General Kenny, MacArthur's plan to avoid the Marianas and go straight to the Philippines, read, kill the Central Pacific Drive and take all the Navy forces for himself, began to grab hold 
of the most unlikely person, Admiral Nimitz. Seth, <laughs> tell us how this yeah. comes to pass. This this blew my mind when I read mm-hmm. this, and I mean it. It it is documented. This actually absolutely floored me because I could think of other people being swayed by MacArthur's people, but not Chester W. Nimitz. But this is exactly what happens following the meeting. Nimitz expressed apprehension about invading the Marianas and apparently pushed the issue with his subordinates, who also jumped on the bandwagon. Nimitz felt that the Marianas would not be suitable for bomber bases and that the cost to capture them would be too high. Such were Nimitz's arguments that his chief of staff, Admiral Charles McMorris, and his planning officer, Rear Admiral Forrest Sherman, agreed with him. Now, granted, admittedly, this is based on the massive casualties that had been suffered at Batio. Nimitz was a little bit hesitant, shall we say, to invade strongly held Japanese islands. Now, we didn't know squat about the Marianas, and we're going to get to those you know, differences in a minute, but it was assumed that Saipan and Tinian and Guam that had been captured from the United States in 41 were relatively stout in defensive positions. So he really wasn't too keen on sending people to go meet their deaths again. However, this is where it gets interesting. By the time Nimitz was done, he had persuaded his entire staff that the Philippines was the right choice and the Marianas would not be invaded. Admiral Chester W. Nimitz, despite having orders from Admiral King to prepare for forager, Nimitz decided that he knew better and supported MacArthur, of all people. What apparently Nimitz failed to recall was that King was his boss, and despite his previous successes, what King wanted done was what Nimitz had to do, period. He also apparently forgot that the JCS, who had the ultimate vote, had already approved the forager operation and stated that it most certainly would take place. Nimitz designated Admiral Sherman to bring his proposal before the JCS in D.C. And this is, this is what surprised the hell out of me. This is extremely ballsy of Nimitz because he doesn't go to King and say, hey, you know what, Admiral, this is, hear me out. He circumvents King, goes behind his back, sends Sherman to go straight to the JCS. That is not what you want to do to Admiral Ernest J. King. No, 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 no. You know, Seth, from my point of view, this was discovery, this news of Nimitz basically capitulating on the Philippine route. I mean, mean, my first reading of Nimitz history was the book written by my old professor, E.B. Potter, you know, my Naval Academy history professor. And, um, you know, I don't remember him mentioning anything about uh, Nimitz falling in line with MacArthur on this point. And so here we are mm-hmm. discovering, uh, f- from my point of view, y- either you're the historian, I'm not, um, this new news. And this is where I have to eat crow because, yeah, you'll remember in an earlier episode where I argued, there's, there's documentation of this as well, that Nimitz had been arguing for um, Formosa and not Philippines. Yes. But here we find evidence that at least one point in time, Nimitz goes as far as to um, kind of thumb his nose at his boss and have his, you know, deputy go to the JCS and propose MacArthur's line of um, approach, you know, in front of King. And so it's like, what the heck are you thinking, Chet? 
It's, um, you know, as you said, it's ballsy. Now, getting wind of Nimitz's change of mind, King immediately fires off a scathing message to Nimitz. King's letter in part said, and I quote, the strategy of moving along the New Guinea coast to the Philippines is absurd and not in accordance with the decisions of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Furthermore, an advance along that axis would leave the Marianas as an unacceptable threat. I assume that even the Southwest Pacific advocates will admit that at some time or other, this thorn in the side of our communications to the Western Pacific must be removed, unquote. In other words, he's saying to Nimitz, we got to do this sooner or later. Right. And right. sooner is better than later. And so this is, orders are not invitations. <laughs> this is not a request. This is a directive. Thou shalt. I know things are going bad in Basio. And of course, Saipan is way more rugged, way bigger, way more Japanese forces than Basio. And I can understand what, what's going through Nimitz's mind here. Sure. But King continues, the combined chiefs of staff has decided on two simultaneous mutually supporting advances in the Pacific. Due weight should be accorded to the fact that operations in the Central Pacific at this time promise a more rapid advance towards Japan and her vital lines of communication. Now is not the time to change strategy. You will adhere to the Joint Chiefs strategy. Now, Seth, if Nimitz had more of an ego, I can imagine that he would not have taken this message very well, would he? No, but you got to wonder what he was expecting would come out of this. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, again, you know, I mean, we praise Admiral Nimitz because, you know, it's been said before, he probably is the finest naval officer in this country's history. However, Agreed. And I've said it before, he's not Christ. He makes, he's human. He makes mistakes. And the thing is, is that he had to have known this is going to get back to the boss. And I'm not really sure what he was thinking there. I don't know if his, if his successes, you know, the Marshall Islands, you know, well, that was his idea to go in there and, and punch Kwajalein in the mouth and, and, you know, avoid, you know, Malayalap and Woche and all that. And we've talked about that. It was his idea and it worked you know, resounding success. You know, I'm not sure if he was starting to kind of feel his oats, if, as they say, or what, but he had to have known that that was going to get back to the boss at some point. And the boss, yeah. who we have established, is not exactly the sweetest old man on the planet, is going to come <laughs> back and tear your head off. And that is essentially what that letter you. did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. Yeah. And again, yeah. but it shows that King, again, we've been defending King and and tearing down MacArthur and and we keep finding evidence that proves that we're right on both counts. King had wonderful strategic vision. Yeah. And, you know, now this is, we're, this is a precursor to Saipan. And things are not going to go swimmingly in Saipan, mm -hmm. but the objective will be achieved. Everybody knows the outcome, right? Everybody who listens to this podcast knows that we took Saipan. So the objective will be achieved. It's going to be bloody. Um, man for man, is it as bloody as Basio? No. 
but no. the numbers are bigger. The percentages may not be as big, but the numbers are bigger. And so we'll talk about that in future episodes. And King went a step further, meeting with Marshall and the JCS, who, th who then said, the primary effort against Japan should be made from the east across the Central Pacific with an eye to the early seizure of Formosa, Luzon, China coast area as a base to attack the citadel of Japan. A fundamental prerequisite is our control of the Marianas, Carolines, and Palau ocean areas, Seth. Yep. And I mean, that's, that's a joint chiefs of staff making that call. So, so it's pretty much put to rest, but to put an exclamation point and a period on this sucker. On March 12th, JCS firmly stated that the Marianas would indeed be captured with D-Day being set for June the 15th. Quote, the objective is to secure control of sea communications through the Central Pacific by isolating and neutralizing the Carolines and by establishment of sea and air bases for operations against the Japanese homeland, unquote. With that proclamation by the Joint Chiefs of Staff, all opposition on in regards to invading the Marianas Island was officially dead. Operation Forager would indeed commence. Now, Bill, we've, we've talked about this ad nauseum, but we have to keep talking about it because this fleet of ours, the fifth fleet now, as it stands under Admiral Raymond Spruance, it's kind of like a, kind of like a, fungus it just continues to grow overnight it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and by now and i mean i know we just said it you know in the marshall islands you know is the, the big blue fleet now i call it in, in my in our notes for this i call it the really big blue fleet because right. that's exactly what it was i mean fifth fleet has just ballooned mm -hmm. in size and power and bill lay it on us the the strength of this is mind-blowing Considering what we started with in 1942, tell us what we got here. Yeah, the, I'm not sure that Spruance would have approved of the description fungus, even if we called it the <laughs> mighty fungus. So the fifth fleet, the mighty fungus. Yeah, the power of a forager would lay within two massive American naval forces under the overall command of Admiral Spruance, fifth fleet with Vice Admiral Mark Mitcher, uh, mighty task force 58 would be the muscle for forager. Mitcher's incredible force sported an eye-popping 15 aircraft carriers that would be divided into four task groups within the massive Task Force 58. Some of the ships included in the force of carriers were the likes of the Hornet, Yorktown, Lexington, Bellow Wood, Bunker Hill, Franklin, we'll talk about Franklin in future episodes, Wasp, Enterprise, Seth's favorite ship, Cabot, and Essex, among others. 20 cruisers, both heavy and light, including my favorite ship, Indianapolis. Willis Lee's battle line, which considered, consisted of Washington, North Carolina, Iowa, New Jersey, Alabama, South Dakota, and Indiana. And that's not even mentioning the vast array of destroyers, which numbered over 60, Seth. My goodness. I mean, it's one of those things that, that defies the imagination and has now become practice. Fast carriers would be under the command of Mitcher. Spruance would stay out of Mitcher's business 
unless the combined fleet showed up to do battle, which of course they do. Right, exactly. It's, it's you know, and again, it, just the unbelievable amount of power that has been built up from really January 1943 until now, what we're looking at, you know, the early part of 44 is, it's just unreal, you know, and you always say it, Bill, and, and, and I'm going to echo it here. Could this country do that again? I don't, I don't think no. we could, uh, you know, no. I really don't. We don't have the shipbuilding capacity. We can't. No, it's, it's unbelievable. So such was the confidence in the power of Task Force 58 that the Navy, who had before dictated that invasions be based on the availability of land-based air for protection of the fleet against counterattack, now ignored that fact completely, as there would be no, and I mean zero, land-based air that could possibly support Forager. The power of Mitcher's carriers and the power of the warships that surrounded the flat tops gave Spruance all the assurance he needed that he could both engage any Japanese task force that sallied forth to do battle and protect the landing beaches all at the same time. Again, go back to Darawa in November 1943, just a few short months before where, you know, Nimitz called off the, well, I didn't call it off, but he shortened the, the shore bombardment because he was worried about the combined fleet sailing out to do battle. Now he's like, bring it on. Let's rock and roll. I've got enough forces. I can do both things at the same time and still have time to sit around and play poker. As we have stated before, the incomparable power of Task Force 58 itself dictated war-making policy in the Pacific. And that's that's 100% true. There was absolutely nothing like it on the planet, and there would never be anything like it ever again. Its power is literally, it's hard to fathom even in this day and age. At one point, as Task Force 58 made its way toward the Marianas, an aloft airman from one of the carriers noted, and I quote, the wakes from all of those ships were perfectly symmetrical with each other, like a perfect ballet. I looked down on all of this power and wondered what kind of fools these Japanese were. They had made one of the greatest miscalculations of all time, and boy, were they going to pay the price, unquote. And that is – and that's a perfect, perfect statement because, of course, you know, when we talk about Operation Forager, you have to talk about a battle of the Philippine Sea, which is, you know, the largest carrier battle of all time. And that's all comes to play here. And we'll, we'll get to Phil C in a mm -hmm. later episode. But, but Bill, there's a guy that we've talked about before here and there, but we've never really gotten into his personality. And we're going to get into that in just a second. But his name is Richmond Kelly Turner, but he is the boss of what's called Task Force 51, which is the Alligator Navy is what they called it. And they had their own insignia that if I can dig it up, I'll show it in the video here. And almost unimaginable 600 ships would take part in Operation Forager Bill. This is a huge operation. The Alligator Navy, as we like to call it, 51, Task Force 51. They, you know, we say 58 was the muscle. 51 is is the, they're, they're the ones that get the job done, Bill. Lay it on us. What, what, what's yeah. all part of this? Yeah, before I jump into that, Seth, I'm, I'm reminded of this is the first battle where we, where we don't need land-based aircraft. And I'm reminded of that old movie line, we don't need no stinking badges. Well, here, we don't need no stinking Air Force. Right, we can do it all with carrier aviation. It's just kind of, um, you know, a humorous anecdote. But an almost unimaginable 600 ships would take part in Forager. Over 300,000 men 
rode in those ships, of which some 127,000 amphibious assault troops consisted of troops from the 2nd, 3rd, and 4th Marine Divisions, as well as the United States Army's 27th Infantry Division, which um, we'll be talking a lot about in future episodes. The operation was a big one. The 5th Amphibious Corps would invade the island of Saipan, followed by Tinian, and then the liberation of Guam, a former American colony that had been captured by the Japanese in December 1941. The forces that would be employed in the capture, or in the case of Guam, recapture, were as follows. The 2nd and 4th Marine Divisions, along with the Army's 27th ID, would take Saipan. Both of the Marine Divisions were combat veterans, as was the 27th. The 2nd, of course, had been at Tarawa, and the 4th had seen the baptism of fire in the marshals. The 27th ID had taken Macon, while the 2nd Marine Division slugged it out and bled to death on Basio. Guam would be captured following Saipan and would utilize talents of the 3rd Marine Vet Division, veterans of Bougainville, as well as the 1st Provincial Marine Brigade, which had yet to see combat. Alongside the Marines would be the untested 77th Infantry Division. The 77th was new to combat, but was generally regarded as probably the best trained army unit in the Pacific Theater. And personal note, for a brief time, my great uncle's engineer company was attached to the 77th. Tinian, the smallest of the three objectives, would be captured by the 2nd and 4th Marine Divisions once Saipan was finished. So by far, this was the largest and most complex operation yet undertaken in the PTO. It would be the first multi-divisional amphibious assault in Marine Corps history. The first to conquer a limited landmass, land the first to encounter Japanese civilians, more on that later, and also would be the first time that Marines would be involved in actual urban warfare, street-to-street, house-to-house fighting. Of course, hand-to-hand -hand fighting has happened a lot in prior battles, mm -hmm. but this house-to-house -house fighting is a completely different animal, Seth. This is it's a new animal in the Pacific, you know, it really is. And right. there, this is the first time that American forces in the Pacific theater are going to encounter, not that Garapan is the size of Tokyo by any means, but it's a city. It's a small city, but it's a city all the same. It's the first time that American combat forces in the Pacific are going to engage the enemy in an urban setting. And it's gonna happen like you think it's gonna happen it's gonna be nasty bloody violent just a horrible place forger would also be the scene bill of the largest japanese tank attack in the pacific the largest mass bonsai attack of the war and the scene of unspeakable tragedy as the campaign finally wears down and this is something i wanted to point out and you and i had talked about this in an episode before i don't remember which one but I got to harp on this for a minute because this is absolutely impressive. You know, we already talked about the about the Big Blue Fleet, but listen to this now. At the same time that all this is going down, 
there's a little operation in Europe going down called Operation Overlord. The, that, of course, being the cross-channel invasion. Yeah, you maybe have. <laughs> maybe so. <laughs> cross-channel invasion of mainland Europe. The United States, and yes, the U.S. provided all of the forces for Forager and a tremendous amount of men and material for Overlord, not all of them by any means, but a lot, was able to supply not only this massive Pacific operation by itself, but also was able to pour resources, ships, men, and aircraft into the largest amphibious invasion in history simultaneously. June 6, 1944 is Overlord. June 15, 1944 is the kickoff for Forager. That's, again... No way we could do this again today. No way. No, you, Not a chance. That's a, I re, I'm reminded of, the, of this, the truth, that the United States landed on the moon in 1969 and then forgot how we did it. We couldn't do it anymore after the moon in 72 when we, the final moon landing. And just like you said, we were able to do these things in 1944. No way we could do them again. I mean, we forgot how to do it. Uh, don't have the capability, logistics, shipbuilding, people, men and material. Couldn't do anything like this anymore. No, it's, it's, it's absolutely staggering when you think about it for a second. So speaking of Normandy, and I'm not taking away anything from, from Operation Overlord that was a both heroic and massive undertaking. Saipan is often overshadowed by the Normandy invasion, and it's understandably so. Why? Mm -hmm. Just as the Pacific is always overshadowed by the European theater. However, when one looks at the Marianas operation in comparison to the Normandy invasion, Forager is honestly, at least in my opinion, more impressive than Overlord. For example, if you just look at the logistics alone, Overlord was conducted over a span of water 20 miles wide, that being, of course, the English Channel, whereas Forager Specifically, Saipan involved 535 ships and over 70,000 men moving some 3,200 nautical miles across the Pacific. Can you Saipan say that again? Closer, yeah, <laughs> 3,200 nautical miles. The invasion kicked off in Pearl Harbor and ended on, the, well, I guess you could say kicked off on the shores of Saipan. 3,200 nautical miles. Saipan is actually closer to Tokyo some 1,250 miles than it was to Pearl Harbor, as I said, 3,200 miles. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. So, Bill, let's talk about this alligator Navy that made this operation and all future operations actually happen. Jim Hornfisher, God rest his soul, who was both a friend mm -hmm. and one of the finest naval historians of the of my generation, said while Mitcher's carriers were the face of the Navy, the destroyers, they were the destroyers, they were not conquerors. That moniker fell to the men of what he and others have called the Alligator Navy. Bill, let's, let's talk about these guys. Yeah. Well, Task Force 58 was filled with mean warships and elegant, graceful lines. The Alligator Navy was filled with ugly ducklings, you know, these LSTs and things like that, while ugly to the eye were no less important than the graceful battle wagons of Willis Lee's impressive battle line. Most ships of the Alligator Navy didn't have names. They had nomenclatures like LST, LCI, LCT, LST-79. That was as close as they came to having a name. APA, AK, and as Hornfisher called them, 
shoeboxes with bow ramps, armored swamp buggies, and swimming six-ton cargo trucks. And while the ugly LSTs and the, and, the, and the like carried the goods, they were protected not only by Task Force 58, but also its own protection force of old battleships, resurrections of the Pearl Harbor ships that were sunk, named Tennessee, Maryland, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, and like, that were later refloated, of course. Old girls that, while slower than molasses, uphill in January, could still throw a mean left hook when they had to. Bombardment ships that had proven their worth as floating artillery platforms that would save lives in the upcoming landings and fights ahead. Now, you throw in the escort carriers that protected air support for the Alligator Navy, and you had the conquering power of the Pacific Fleet. It wasn't Task Force 58, the sexy task force. It was the Alligator Navy, Seth. Absolutely. Task Force 58 can punch you in the mouth, but they can't step on your throat. And Task Force 51 can and yeah. did all the way across the Pacific. The amphibious forces for forager, again, harping on it, but it's true because this is the biggest operation yet undertaken in the Pacific, were almost unreal on paper. The assault force started to load in Hawaii for the invasion. Each Marine division, of which there were three, had three regiments. Each regiment filled four transports, and each transport needed a cargo ship for the unit's gear. Each Marine division had its own tanks that were loaded on LCMs, which stands for landing craft medium, and were, which were then loaded on LSDs, landing ship docks, for the ride to the Marianas. That was only part of the massive train. Over 700 Amtraks had been earmarked for use in Forger. Remember at Terra where we said 75? 700. Hundred, as well as DUKWs, ducks as they were called, artillery pieces, AAA guns, aviation engineers, garrison forces, and other men of various utility. Each division would require 56 LSTs, landing ship tanks, that would help put the men ashore. It was truly impressive, and all of this firepower, complexity, and might was under the control of one man with a rather checkered past, Bill. And this is the, the guy we've talked about before, but we've never dug into him, but let's do that here. And that's Richmond Kelly Turner. Yeah, he's got a kind of a taciturn reputation. Yeah, he was born in Portland, Oregon in 1885. Kelly Turner was a graduate of the Naval Academy, class of 1908. Like all Academy men of those days, he served on a plethora, of, he served a plethora of time aboard ships, battleships mostly, serving aboard Pennsylvania, which he hated because of its status as fleet flagship. Mississippi, he was gunnery officer aboard California. Kelly Turner knew his way around a warship. After serving stints ashore as ordnance officer at the Naval Gun Factory and Buord, the Buord, same Buord that we talked so much about with, with respect to torpedo problems, he applied for and was granted flight training in 1927. After getting his wings, he served in various roles as Commander Air Squadron's Asiatic Fleet and XO of USS Saratoga. And again, people don't connect Kelly Turner with being an aviator, but that's his background. As Director of War Plans in D.C. from 40 to 41, Turner had his hands 
in the pre-war plans and previously discussed such as War Plan Orange and Rainbow Five. So he understood the war plans and understood what it was going to take to move them forward. In this post, Turner also held the reins for dissemination of intelligence to specific naval areas across the globe. Remember, there weren't any intel officers back in this day. Line officers served as intelligence officers in a collateral duty. In 1941, November 1941, it was actually Turner who decided against sending Admiral Husband Kimmel the deciphered Japanese diplomatic messages that strongly hinted at an attack on the United States, that, that the attack was imminent. Turner, who was aware that Japanese agents on Oahu had reported birthing locations of U.S. ships to the Imperial Japanese Navy, avoided somehow any blame for the greatest intelligence failure in American history, even though he held the keys that, came, that very well could have allowed American forces on Oahu to at least be better prepared for the attacks that came. So Seth, while difficult to pin the blame for Pearl Harbor on Turner squarely, he certainly was culpable for the results of the attack in the same way that husband Kimmel was crucified. And as Sam Cox has said in the past, un, um, inappropriately so. Yeah, yeah, he really was. And, and he, he escapes with a couple of really big mistakes here that don't mar his career in the way that it would have marred other people's careers. And, you know, you could say he had friends in high places, and he did. But in November 1941, he really didn't <laughs> have that many friends in high places. Yet he somehow escapes blame. And this is not the only time this happens to the guy. If that weren't enough, following, following his stint serving alongside Admiral King himself in D.C. as King's assistant chief of staff, Turner was sent to the Pacific in 1942, where he first took command of the amphibious forces that would drive the war to completion. Under his command, the Savo Island debacle fell, and I'm talking about the first Battle of Savo Island, August 8, 1942. Whether or not Savo was his fault is, again, arguable, and we're not going to get into that here, but like Pearl Harbor, he certainly held some of the blame. The fact that he survived his and his career actually flourished is a miracle in and itself, but would prove to be fortuitous for the United States Navy in its prosecution of the war going forward. He was known, Bill, as Terrible Turner. Kelly Turner's explosive temper was absolutely legendary. In 1942, particularly when the fight for Guadalcanal was at its most desperate, Kelly Turner would often explode in expletives, throwing blame for failures at anyone in the room and plenty outside the room, yet none on his own shoulders. He was a pedant, one who would often talk at people or talk down to them, even his superiors, and he was a heavy, heavy drinker, Bill. Even at sea, Seth. I mean, he would sneak yeah. whiskey into his stateroom, and you know, people would say, you know what, he's a, he's a pretty smart guy when he's not drunk. What Kelly Turner did have, despite his transgressions, were both friends in high places and loads of talent. Arriving in theater to serve under Spruance, one of his closest and oldest friends in August of 1943, Turner was in the grips of alcoholism. He would spend periods drinking heavily, but would pull himself 
from the stupor, from the dregs, to complete his job, which he always, at least after 1942, did exceedingly well. And this is really what caused that force field to surround him and shielded him from neg- negative things that might have affected him otherwise. Spruance, his old buddy, was always at his side to help pull him from the heavy grips of alcohol, alcohol albeit temporarily. Now, his assignment to serve under Spruance surprised him, as he was well aware that Nimitz wasn't totally sold on him, at least not at first. Nimitz liked Turner, in fact, they're buried together now, but said later, there were times I wanted to reach out and shake him. But he was brilliant, caustic, arrogant, and tactless, just the man for the job that he had to do, Seth. Yeah, it's true. And as far as his talent was concerned, he was an absolute genius when it came to amphibious warfare. He truly was. He was whip smart, and he was almost he had an almost tireless work ethic. He was creative, and he was a big thinker, Bill. He, his brain's processing speed was something that often bewildered the likes of Raymond Spruance, who was no idiot by any means, who said of him, quote, he is able to hand a mass of details that leave me completely befuddled, unquote. And this is coming from Ray Spruance, who was no dullard by any means of the word. Under Turner's watchful and innovative eye, the force technically known as Task Force 51, or the Joint Expeditionary Force, evolved to be, as he put it, quote, the technical equipment, the heavy power, and the naval bombardment, unquote. The technical equipment were the vast array of ugly ships in the Alligator Navy that Bill talked about, the LSTs, LCIs, LCTs, and their, and their cousins. The heavy power, as Turner described it, was a seagoing assault force of mechanized infantry, large and well-armed enough to attack from the sea, capture territory, stay, and keep what they took, unquote. Simply put, this was the United States Marine Corps. Under his and Raymond Spruance's close friend, the tempestuous Holland Smith. And we're going to talk about Holland Smith in detail in the near future, Bill. Um, The use of warships as a bombardment force was not anything new by any means, but it was Kelly Turner who pleaded for and received the, quote, Market Street Commandos. These are the old battle wagons that were resurrected after Pearl Harbor that had lived off of San Francisco's Bay Area right there at the Embarcadero, actually, and utilized the old battleships, the Pearl Harbor survivors, as shore bombardment and mobile gunfire support ships. And that's exactly what these old battle wagons come to do. And that's that's their calling card for the remainder of the war, are these just these mobile gun platforms that pound Japanese shore installations. And that was Kelly Turner who asked for that, received it, and employed it to absolute perfection, Bill. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, we've got to kind of segue into a bit of a sad prequel to the operation of Saipan, because it's an important part of the history here. Um, And and we're going to talk about, you know, the Pacific Fleet, while all of it was replete with warships of all shapes and sizes, transports, as far as the eye could see, and vessels of various ships and size that would be used to transport the men from Pearl Harbor to the Marianas, the one thing the Pacific did lack was ammunition ships. Ironic as it it may be, the most powerful amphibious force known to mankind was light on ammunition haulers. Turner 
who was neck deep in the planning for Forager, was forced to use other ships to carry his ground troops and bombardment vessel ammunition. Light on ammunition ships, Turner was forced to use what he had to haul this stuff, LSTs. Turner allotted 25 of his LSTs to carry ammunition of all shapes and sizes for Operation Foragers. Now, some were loaded down with 5-inch shells, 4.5-inch rockets, while others carried a standard ammunition shipload of 71 tons of ammunition per ship. This consisted of nearly 1 million rounds of belted 30 caliber ammunition, 1,600 grenades, 200 bazooka rounds, 1,460 millimeter mortar rounds, 450 81 millimeter mortar rounds, 3,037 millimeter rounds, 450 75 millimeter, how is it rounds? It keeps going and going, 500 pounds of TNT, 500 pounds of C2 explosive. 200 Bangalore torpedoes. Now, the 26 LSTs tied up near what was called Westlock at Pearl Harbor, and they were truly floating bombs. One false move would spoil, would spell extinction for anyone near the ships. Now, Seth, throughout my time in the submarine force, we still went to Westlock at Pearl Harbor to load our torpedoes. So I've been to Westlock many, many times, many times. Um, it's kind of a beautiful transit to get to Westlock. It's kind of unspoiled Hawaii, pristine nature on both sides of the water as you're approaching the pier at Westlock. But there are some artifacts still existing today. And I'm sure you're going to show video and or f photographs of both then and maybe even now of, of the artifacts of what happened. And what was that, Seth? This is, this is one of the true tragedies of, of, you know, again, we said it before, we'll say it again, any combat law, any loss is a tragedy. And, and this is one of, one of those instances that happens before a shot is ever even fired in, in, in this massive upcoming operation. Throughout the middle of May 1944, the invasion forces that would land on Saipan had been conducting dress rehearsals for these invasions, or for the landing drive, I'm sorry. With their precision training, precision and training now finished, the units, all of them, were prepping to sail for the Marianas. The previously mentioned LSTs had been loaded or were almost finished being loaded and were ready to go. At 1530, on May 21st, 1944, a tremendous explosion rocked Westlock at Pearl Harbor. LST-353 appeared by all accounts to spontaneously combust and erupt in a violent, massive explosion. The massive explosion threw men off of their feet and flung the LST con LST's contents, ammunition, and fuel flying through the air. The fuel ignited as it spilt and the ship spewed flaming fuel into the water. The LSTs tied up near 353 quickly caught fire and began to explode as well. So it's just a chain reaction. Boom, 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 boom. Other LSTs near LST 353 tried to get underway and evade the chain reaction of explosions that were now beginning to cook off. Some were successful, but those who were near the fires were entangled and blocked by other LSTs that were also now too catching fire. So it's just going from bad to worse. 
Soon, another explosion, the largest of them all. There were about five separate explosions. The third was the biggest of them all, though. Uh, sent debris, men, fuel, and ammunition flying through the air. Some fuel drums landed as far as five miles away. The explosion itself was heard as far away as 15 miles. To make matters worse, one of the burning, exploding LSTs drifted over to the next birthing area, which was designated as T9, and ignited yet another LST. The situation continued to deteriorate. Quote, the smoke was so thick you couldn't see much in any direction, one sailor recalled. LSTs, landing craft tanks, and other smaller vessels cut through the water, but their skippers had trouble seeing men amidst the smoke and flames. Some of the men were in the water, still alive ended up being run over by the boats trying to rescue them, a sailor recalled. At about the time of the third explosion, LCMs, landing craft mechanized with fire pumps, departed East Lock for West Lock, while fireboats at Honolulu Harbor, 14 nautical miles away, sped toward the disaster. Meanwhile, tugs and a few fireboats at West Lock were trying to tow the ships apart and douse the flames, but to no avail. At 1650, so a little, little more than an hour later, LST-353, the site of the first explosion and now adrift and in flames, sank. Other LSTs remained on the surface as burning, exploding specters of further destruction. This is an absolute catastrophe, Bill. This is not just one ship that goes up. It's a bunch. And unfortunately, not only do the supplies go up and they're lost, but so are men, Bill. Yeah, you know, I remember an early ship, I can't remember if I was on Omaha or my first tour in Indianapolis, we were going into Westlock uh, to, to load torpedoes, and, um, and you know, I'm standing topside, part of the maneuvering watch, with, you know, sailors that are getting ready to handle lines, and we're passing a hulk, rusted out hulk of one of these LSTs, and one of the sailors said, what the heck is that for? <laughs> and I said, seriously? Seriously, you don't know what that is? Seriously? And this is probably 1981 time frame. And, and I ended up doing a history lesson as we we're, you know, approaching the pier before we passed the lines over telling them the historical significance of this hulk that they were seeing, um, as, you know, that's still there. And I think it's still there today, although it's rusted almost to the waterline by now. The explosions and fires, though, in that day, continued for hours, some burning into the following day. 163 men were killed in the explosions and resulting fires with an additional 396 injured. Six LSTs, three LCTs, 17 Amtraks, and a whole bunch of howitzers were also lost in the accident. To this day, no one knows what caused the first explosion or why it happened. Anyone who may have seen the origins of the incident was killed, Seth. And so it's incredible and not an auspicious way to begin this major campaign. No, no. And, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the great mysteries. And, you know, I'm sure we'll hear conspiracy theorists and all this other garbage, but it, nobody knows what happened. You know, there were army troops that were seen to be smoking and loading mortar shells. And all the, by the way, I wanted to point out all that, that, that list of supplies that you, you spit out a few minutes ago about, you know, 800 tons of this and 500 pounds of this and all this. That was for one LST. That's just one. 
And when you've got 26 of them tied up like that, I mean, it's, it's like nuclear bombs waiting to go off. And that's exactly what happens here. Not all 26 went down, obviously. But but anyway, my point being is that no one knew exactly what happened. There were army troops that were loading supplies that were seen to be smoking. There were sailors that were standing around uh, that were welding something. I don't know what it was, which, of course, throws sparks on one of these LSTs. So nobody knows how it went off. But suffice it to say that it is... Aside from the Pearl Harbor attack on December 7th, this is the worst tragedy that happens at Pearl Harbor during World War II. With no enemy involved in theory, right? And so, yeah, now we have very stringent precautions. Fly the Bravo flag. Um, Smoking lamp is obviously out. No hot work. There's all kinds of precautions that take place when you're loading ammunition today. And, And one would presume that something like that was supposed to be happening, but but... Who knows what kind of shortcuts were taken in our zeal to get these ships loaded and this operation moving. That's the tragedy, right? And it's a, a lesson in all of life, right? If you rush to do something, that's when bad things are going to happen. And I think, that, I think that's a very good point is that it, there was a rush to get things going. Because, I mean, if you look at anything that happens in Pearl Harbor from 1943 until the end of the war, it was like foot to the the pedal to the floor, man. It was just foot on the gas 100, 100% of the time, seven days a week, 24 hours a day. Just go, 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 go. And I think that may have been part of the issue. That's just me guessing. After this, uh, not that things slow down <laughs> by any means, it's that there are a lot more precautions. There's a lot more um, steps that need to be taken that the Navy's like, this can't happen again least not to this degree and that and that you know by and large it does not happen again so while we've talked about the american build-up and the forces and the leaders and this and that and the other you know throughout this whole episode we've kind of ignored the opposition and you know the the japanese in the marianas and again specifically saipan and we're harping saipan because it's the, the the first invasion of the of the trio here um they're not completely in the dark as to whether or not we are coming to the Marianas, are they, Bill? No. You know, the they, Japanese intelligence was aware. You got all this radio traffic flying around. Something's happening, right? It's reaching a crescendo. So they knew something was up. Radio traffic had been monitored, pointed to an uptick of activity in and out of Pearl Harbor. Among the things that Japanese intel analysts thought was the location of the next operation was anything but certain. So Japanese intel was split on whether the Americans would land on Palau next or in the Marianas. The majority of the intel section believed the Palau's were the next target, hence the reinforcement there. The first Japanese Marine Division would, would I'm sorry, oh, no. the oh, first Marine Division would soon face these reinforced division defenses, but not yet. While MacArthur's invasion of Biak occurring just before the invasion of Saipan, Japanese attention shifted towards that area. In addition to the Japanese problems, Admiral Koga Minechi, who had replaced Admiral Yamamoto as commander-in-chief of a combined fleet following Yamamoto's death, had been lost in an assumed plane crash on his way to the Philippines. 
On March 31st, 1944, his airplane, a four-engine Emily flying boat, ran into a typhoon somewhere between Palau and Davio and was lost, never, never to be seen again. Two days later, Admiral Toyota Soemu was appointed the third sink combined fleet thus far in the war, Seth. Yeah. Yeah. The loss of Kogo was, was a big deal. And, and we're going to get to why the loss of Kogo was a big deal for the Japanese. I mean, obviously this is, you know, this is their commander in chief combined fleet. So the, that loss alone is a big deal, but the f- things that factor into Koga's demise here and some of the things that end up in allied specifically Filipino and American intelligence hands here play into the sea battle that is going to occur, the Battle of the Philippine Sea. And we're not going to get into that here because we're going to get into that in a couple of separate episodes. But just suffice to say that when Admiral Koga went down, he had the plans for what was called the Z-Plan, which was the almighty decisive battle by the Imperial Japanese Navy that they had been searching for since midway. He had literally those plans to the letter in the aircraft with him when he went down. And the, one of the things that survived, well, two things that survived that crash were Admiral Fukudome. He survived the crash and he was captured by Filipino and uh, Filipino uh, resistance fighters and American guerrillas. And those plans, the Z plan, was captured by Allied forces. And we'll get to that in a separate episode. Tojo himself, uh, well, well, let me, let me, let me take, take a step back, take a step back here. Following Toyota's appointment as Commander-in-Chief Combined Fleet, his new Chief of Staff, Toyota's new Chief of Staff, Admiral Kusaka, uh, where Kusaka eventually makes his way to Saipan. While there, Kusaka had a brief reunion with Admiral Nagumo Chuichi of Pearl Harbor Midway and Eastern Solomon's fame, who had, after the latter two defeats, had been reduced within the IJN to a commander of a small force on Saipan. Uh, Kusaka arrives on Saipan. He is absolutely astounded at the lack of measures that have been taken to prepare defenses on Saipan. Strongly urging that more construction take place, Kusaka left the island. Now, again, going back to what we had said initially, Bill, you know, the Marianas were exceedingly important to Japan's defense of that Central Pacific location. And we've talked about this with John Parshall. You know, they, they pour resources in the smaller islands like Batio and Biak is another one and we'll do an episode on Biak in the future you know where these defenses put up these massively incredibly strong fights that just are these bloodbaths yet these strategically important islands like the Marshalls and Saipan do not see a great build up and defensive posture and you got to sit there and wonder what in the hell have you been doing all this time if mm-hmm. you value this territory so much why don't you act like it? So Kusaka urges that more defenses be poured in the Saipan. Tojo himself promised that more defensive measures will be placed on Saipan before any potential American invasion. The strengthening measures that Tojo, Tojo promised meant more Japanese troops, infantry specifically. Beginning in February 1944, Imperial Japanese Army troops begin to be deployed to the area. Troops left Manchuria, bound for the Marianas, some 4,000 of them. Only be only to be intercepted and attacked by your old people, United States Navy submarines, Bill, and the submarines of the Pacific Force. We've talked about them 
and we're going to continue, especially now in 44. Not only are they sinking warships and cargo ships, they're sinking troop ships, and they are, of course, unwittingly aiding the uh, Operation Forager in their sinkings here, Bill. Yeah, and because the torpedoes work, finally, right? It was USS yeah, Trout yeah, really. discovered the convoy and attacked, sinking the Sakito Maru and killing 2,280 of the 4,000-ish men bound for Saipan. So only 1720 ever made it ashore. And most of them were hospital cases. And they just, they didn't, you know, when the ship goes down, they're not having a great time. The subs weren't done. Over a period of three days, May 30th through June 1st, American submarines Pintado and Shark attacked a Japanese troop convoy bound for Saipan. Over that period, the subs sank five of the seven ships in the convoy, carrying men of the Japanese 43rd Division. So the reinforcement program was somewhat successful despite the submarine attacks that attempted to derail it. By the beginning of June, some 31,000 men were on Saipan and ready to defend it. American intelligence assumed that there were somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 to 15,000 Japanese ashore, not the 31,000 that were really there. Japanese General Saito Yoshi and I struggle with the Japanese name, forgive me, all of our Japanese listeners. <laughs> Saito Yoshitsugo, the Army commanding officer ashore on Saipan, preferred a defense in depth. Of course, we always do. But by the time the sufficient forces arrived, which was to say early June, he didn't have time to construct fortifications for a deliberate defense in depth structure with which to successfully defend Saipan. So he felt that because of this, he would defend the beaches, kind of like what happened on Basio. Taking notes from Basio, he figured that the best place to stop the Americans was at the water's edge. In so doing, he poured his men into those areas, placing machine guns and artillery in locations where they could do the most damage. Over 30 machine gun positions faced the landing beaches, along with multiple gun positions that ranged from 25 to 75 millimeter artillery pieces and, and mortars, Seth. Yeah, and you know, one of the important aspects, Bill, about the submarine interdiction of the Japanese reinforcements or buildup, I guess is a more appropriate way to put it, of the Mariana, specifically Saipan, is not only are they sinking troop ships, and I failed to put this in the notes, but I just remembered this when you were talking about this. Not only are they sinking troop ships and killing soldiers, and they are, they are sinking ships that are carrying supplies. One of the things, two of the things that, that Saito requested, didn't request, demanded, was steel, rebar, and concrete. Right. Because neither of the yeah neither of those things were available at all on Saipan or in the Marianas, and that stuff had to be shipped from either China or Japan or both, and be brought over across the route that were infested at this time with American submarines. So a lot, and it, you know, you don't think that oh, concrete and rebar are going to be you know you need more men. Well, yeah, you do need men, but you also need a place to put these guys so they can mm -hmm. hold these defenses on the beaches and. Having been to Saipan myself, and I know you have too, and I know John has as well, yeah, sure, there are concrete bunkers on Saipan, 
but not to the level of they, that they are on Tarawa or anywhere else because they didn't have the material to build it. And why didn't they have the material to build it? Because our subs kept sinking ships carrying the stuff. Yeah. So as the, the Japanese are sending the, the, the rebar and the concrete or the stuff to make concrete to Saipan, our subs, like Seahorse, for, uh, under the command of Slade Cutter for one, are sinking these ships before they ever get yeah. there. So when the people arrive... Labor on Saipan because they're not above, you know, commandeering Japanese or Korean civilians who are working the fields and saying, yeah, now you're going to be building bunkers. But they didn't have the material. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and they didn't, and even if they had the material, frankly, at this point, they didn't have the time. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, most of these supplies are running in there about mid to late May. And of course, as we know, we've established that D-Day is June 15th, 1944. So even if they have the material at this point, early June, they don't have the time. That, that time has run out. And Bill, you talked about just just a second ago, you talked about, you know, them forcing Korean laborers and the, and the second class Japanese citizens, Okinawans and whatever, and the Chamorans too, the Saipanese the who, who live there, um, into forced labor. One of the things that they did, though, Bill, uh, you know, and and this is we mentioned this earlier in this broadcast is that this is the first time that American combat troops in the Pacific are going to encounter enemy Japanese civilian populations, our population, um, and and not just you know a small population. Over thirty thousand Japanese civilians are on the island of Saipan when the United States invades, and Guam. By comparison, they would meet a population who, for the most part, were absolutely overjoyed at the Americans' return. The liberation of Guam would be just that, a liberation of people who enjoyed freedom and a sort of Americanized life before December 1941. The breaking of the Japanese yoke, so to speak, would be a moment on Guam, those, a moment for the people on Guam that they would soon not forget. But the two other targets of this Operation Forager, Saipan and Tinian Bill, they would meet a population who most certainly did not want them there, didn't they? Or would they? Yeah, true. And, and this is one of the points I made in my article about um, Halsey, published a year ago or so, where I talked about one of the things that Japanese leadership would do would be print Halsey's true statements verbatim. One of his statements was, by the time I'm done with this war, the only place the Japanese language will be spoken is in hell. And again, my point is that American strategists were not happy with Halsey's statements because they realized they were being used. They weren't consistent with our narrative, which was we're going to defeat the Japanese empire, not the Japanese people. And they were being used against us to rally Japanese people into believing that they were all going to die. Japanese civilians were all going to die. So the first time in the Pacific War, the Americans would encounter this large population. Um, and once the war began, the Japanese and Japanese civilians in the Marianas were told that the Americans were bestial, morally corrupt people bent on the destruction of the Japanese race. And all they had to do was refer to Halsey's statements to, as evidence that they were telling the truth. However, at the time, say 1942, no one thought, no thought was ever given by the military civilian populace as to the Americans ever setting foot on Saipan 
as Japan would ultimately win the war. That's what they thought. By 1944, that predetermined thought of ultimate victory had already been shattered for the most part. An American invasion of the Marianas seemed imminent, and the Japanese population, in the dark as to the real state of the war, they were led to believe that Japan was winning, were prepared for the inevitable, were finally being prepared for the inevitable and unthinkable. So we've already established the Japanese military and their lack of desire to surrender. However, this desire of death over life pervaded the Japanese civilian population in the Marianas as well. And, the, and the, 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 it was conveyed to the Japanese population that this was the right and honorable outcome for them if the Americans were to land. So indoctrinated and told that the Americans, especially Marines, would rape women and kill babies, torture men, women, and children, and would eventually kill the civilians, young and old alike, in terrible, unspeakable ways. That led to the population, untimely because of the military coercion and sometimes force, to prefer death at their own hands than to allow themselves to be captured or surrender to American troops, Seth. Mm -hmm. It's an absolute tragedy that is going to befall these people on Saipan and Tinian uh, later on Okinawa. And, you know, we've already talked about what Rich, we talked about, you know, what was waiting for us on the shores of Japan. And this, it's no different except, you know, it's a hundredfold worse, you know, the misguided, and that's what they were, and brainwashed, and that's what they were, populace would have to endure their own war as American forces moved ever closer to the Marianas. And in so doing, and this is so incredibly important, the, the things that happen on Saipan specifically, and it, it, the, the civilian suicides also happen on Tinian too, but not to the degree that they did on Saipan. The, the, Japanese civilian suicides and the way they did it and how they did it and what happened and we're getting into all of that would leave an impression not only on American Marines and soldiers who were there and at this point they were mostly Marines, at least around Murphy Point, but more importantly on American military planners that watched the drama with sickened eyes and looked to the future of the Pacific War and how that future would pan out. And that is so important. That might be the most important statement we've made in the whole damn podcast, Bill, is that yes. the, the, the way that the Japanese civilians and the military react to this final stage of the Saipan operation absolutely without a doubt 100% directly influenced our decision at later stage to use the atom bombs on Japan as opposed to running into these brainwashed civilians on mm -hmm. Kyushu and Honshu and it's just this absolutely influenced the the decisions that were made in 1945 what occurs here in July of 1944 it's it's an absolute tragedy and it's, it's a haunting episode of the Pacific War. We'll get into it when, when, in depth when we get to that point. Yes, Seth, it also caused the Japanese leadership to tweak their narrative as well to the civilian populations. They realized that these civilians died. And so for future battles, died by suicide. And for future battles, what they said is, yeah, it's okay to die. But before you do, 
You have to kill one American. So they ended up teaching, you know, pre-pubescent teenagers to use handmade spears to kill American Mm -hmm. troops, you know, in places like Okinawa and things like that. So, yes, suicide is, is honorable and correct, but not before you kill one American. These suicides on Saipan were wasted. We don't want your deaths to be wasted. So before you die, kill one American. And again, that further reinforced the notion among American planners that it was going to be a fight to death even among the civilian population, which is what, you know, as you said, reinforces the notion that the atomic bombs are the right outcome. And and we're gonna we're gonna harp on the civilian aspect of this as we go into the we're gonna cover the Saipan land operation in two episodes um, because it's so important. It's not unlike Tarawa, frankly. It's it because it informs a lot of things that had not everything, but a lot of things that happened afterwards. And we're gonna we're gonna get into this um, because it's not just the civilians that commit a bunch of you know mass suicides. It's the Japanese military itself. And of course, is what is the largest bonsai charge, if you want to call it, the, uh, yeah, at the uh, at the end of the Battle of Saipan before Marpy Point ever even actually occurs. Mm-hmm. It's an absolute tragedy, and and you know we said this in in an episode earlier, Bill. I forget which one it was, and it doesn't matter. Is that you know the 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 war as has been fought to this point has been mainly two military forces slugging it out, and you know as we've gone into operations like. Tarawa or Beishio and the Marshall Islands, Kwajalein and Roy Namor, you know, we're having to dig the Japanese out of their, out of their positions. And this is not going to be anything different here on Saipan, but it's the way that the Japanese choose to die and the military and the, the civilian population too, that makes Saipan specifically just an absolute friggin' horror show from beginning to end. And it's, it's something that the United States military never ever expected to occur not certainly not here nope and spoiler alert the united states marine corps and the united states army don't end up best of friends after this battle mm-hmm. is over so we'll tease you with that um and many of you probably know what we're talking about yeah and we're and, and to, to clarify bill's point we're going to have an episode with john mcmanus where we're going to talk about the infamous smith versus smith because that's extremely important that goes into again things that follow after operation forager so um bill is there anything else you want to add to this setup for this massive operation forager no um you know we 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 talk about inflection points in the war turning points we we agreed that guadalcanal was the major turning point in the pacific war um, we underscored the difficulty that the Saipan and amphibious landings brought with them, you know, making Normandy look trivial by comparison from a logistic um, standpoint, not from a, you know, a combat loss standpoint, but from a logistic standpoint. And, you know, this was an inflection point in the war because it changed the calculus of how we planned future operations. Yeah, it, it really is, and and it's 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 tremendously important. You know, you look at the Central Pacific Drive, and it kicks off at Beishio, and then and it goes on and goes on and goes on, and then it arrives here at the Marianas. 
And, you know, the war, it only ramps up in violence and activity after this. You know, because eventually we do get to the Philippines and eventually we get to a little place called Peleliu. And there's a whole discussion there. And then we get into, you know, Iwo Jima and Okinawa and it just gets worse and worse and worse and worse. And this is the beginning, frankly, in my opinion, of the unnecessary slaughter on both sides. And it, it really all begins here at Saipan. Yep. So with that, we want to thank you for listening in on our conversation. Please subscribe to the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast wherever you receive your podcast. Give us a rating and review. We do appreciate it. Also, if you want to see the video version of this and any of our other episodes, subscribe to our YouTube channel called the Unauthorized History of the Pacific War podcast. If you have a question or comment, send us an email at unauthorizedpacificpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, we've got plenty more Forager uh, material coming up. We've got two op- uh, two episodes with John Parshall about Saipan. We've got two op- uh, two operations, two episodes with John Parshall about Battle of Philippine Sea. We've got an, ap- uh, an episode about Tinian, an episode about Guam. We've got plenty of Forager material coming up because this is the inflection point of the Central Pacific Drive here right now. Uh, so once again... My name is Seth Parrott, and I want to thank you very much for listening and or watching Bill. And I'm Bill Toady. See you again next week.